You're listening to Instructive's Insane Instruction Show. I am Ferry V. I create happy and safe users for over two decades. This is a listen and learn podcast to help your firm keep on the right side of the law by creating better information for use. What's more important than safety for your customers? I won't get into details, but one guy actually died recently because the information for use were completely inaccurate. Follow my show and this won't happen to you. How do you know you can trust what I say? I've worked in product development and compliance for a few decades and have built up three companies. I've been in several standardization committees. I'm invited to speak at many international conferences and my blog attracts over 10,000 visitors a month. None of this is as important as keeping your company and your users safe. By following my advice, hundreds of companies have stayed clear of the law. And not only will you comply, your users will also love using your product. They're happy, their partners are happy, and of course, I am happy for them. Hi there, and welcome to this podcast. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the new standard for user instructions, or actually, I have to say, the standard for information for use. The new revised standard provides principles and general requirements for information for use of products. Clear information for use is necessary for using a product safely, efficiently, and effectively. Our guest for today is Sven Ring, who was part of the committee that developed the standards. Sven is a technical documentation and information expert. He currently works for a Chinese wind turbine manufacturer. He has over 30 years of experience in technical communication and developed several other standards. Sven, welcome. Hi, Ferry. It's great to be here and it is strange to hear one's life summed up so shortly as you just did. <laughs> nice. Hey, Sven, uh, tell me, so uh, you were part of the committee that developed uh, the A2079 standard for information for use. That's correct, yes. Since when have you been involved? It's about eight years ago. Uh, I was at that time working for another wind turbine manufacturer, the largest one in the world. Well, they say they are. Uh, Vestas. And I was asked if I wanted to uh, basically join the uh, Danish Standards Organization. And because I was very vocal in the lack of use of standards at the time with regards to documentation. And uh, when I got in with the Danish Standards Institute, they asked me if I wanted to join this particular uh, working group. Um, and that's eight years ago. And I'm, uh, I've been involved with it ever since. I've been through two revisions. Uh, the last one, will I, I will say, is by far the better. I have had comments from a lot of people about the previous version where they said that it was not clear enough. I think a lot of people expect that a standard kind of grabs you by the nose and drags you through the entire process. That's not this type of standard. It's one that really you have to use your head, but it gives you guidelines. When was the standard ready? Uh, the latest version was released in May of this year, uh, um, and we have been very successful finally in getting it into to the that it will be referenced from the machinery directive, which means that it's risen in clout and usability. 
it has really become the standard for documentation. There are others out there, uh, but we have been very careful to either ask these two people to address the, the issue they have, because there is particularly one in Germany that has used a lot of the content from the uh, 82079. But I think we've managed to solve this, and that 82079 will be the standard to use in the future. Right, and you're saying you managed to solve this, so... Sorry, when I say we managed, it really was, it was a convener. I mean, the way standards are set up is that you have a group of experts and a convener, and the convener is the context to the, the standardization organizations for whom you are updating, creating, or whatever, a standard. And, and it was the, the convener who, through a lot of communication with various uh, people in various standards organizations, managed to get this going the way it should do. I really have to put it down to Claudia Klumps to honor her for that, because she was the convener and she's the one that has managed to do this. Right, okay. Can you give a short description of the other people that were part of the, the committee? Was it like an international uh, group of people? It was a very international. It, it was. It consisted of a couple of Japanese gentlemen, mostly from the standards organization or from universities. Then there were several German participants. This was very much business people. This was people with an interest in getting the standard up and running. And there was uh, a couple of Brits that were very much trying to apply the British standards point of view in, in this standard. Then there was me representing little old Denmark and there was an American involved as well. So we had the link into the American standards because she was heavily involved in American standards around documentation and God knows what else. She lived from working on standards when traveled all over the world and, and uh, you know, we had online meetings where one minute she would be in the US, then suddenly she would be in China, then suddenly she would be somewhere else. Well-traveled lady that was very well connected and therefore we had some really good experts that all knew what they were dealing with. I tried to very much, along with the, the Germans, to bring in the the actual user's perspective on it so that, you know, is it something the user can use or are we just getting academic here? So I think we ended up with a very good standard. So you said you had a lot of uh, online meetings. Uh, did you meet in person as well? We had at the end because finances began to become short. And let's put, be honest, like with the, the meeting we're in right now, the technology has developed over time. So we started with meetings and we started with meetings in Tokyo. And I've been to Washington, we've been to Stockholm, we've been to various other places where, where participants have been. The secretary for the technical committee under which this work group that worked on the standard belonged was Swedish. That was why we ended up in Sweden at one stage. We also had a Finnish or have a Finnish member who was very dry in humor uh, and also working for a standards organization. Did you experience any any cultural differences between for example yeah, the, the Americans, the Japanese people, European people, that they have their own kind of sort of inputs when developing the standard? To begin with, our Japanese colleagues were, were very, their input was very much on the formality side. Uh, are we allowed to say this? Are we allowed to do this in a standard? They are unsurpassed in knowledge and skills, whereas others were more sort of into the, as I said, the more the user perspective and the end user view of it. But we didn't really have 
cultural clashes as such. We had clashes of wishes. I shan't deny that our German colleagues at one point tried to sneak in a little bit of German standardization uh, that they wanted referenced in this standard and uh, they very quickly pulled it out again. So uh, all honor to them for that. But they, they, there's been sort of clashes of interest rather than clashes of culture. Everybody knew what we were there for. Everybody knuckled down and everybody provided one way or the other. There was, uh, you know, a suggestion came up and someone said, oh, no, I can't do that because, or others were saying, yeah, we do it like this. And being the word nerd that I am, being with technical documentation for so many years, I was the one that tended to come up with uh, suggestions to wording rather than, let's say, perhaps the too much of contents because a lot of it we argued out before it actually was written down. The conveners were the ones that would take notes and bless them, both the current one and the one prior to it, uh, very, very, very good at getting all the words that we said down onto paper so that it ended up being a standard. So uh, I can only uh, praise them for that. Right. Um, you're saying you had uh, quite some suggestions regarding the wording. Do you mean the wording as in uh, terminology being used in the standard or uh, wording in terms of how to write clear text or clear instructions, for example? Both, actually. You know, all of us, except our dear American and one, one uh, British member, English is our second language. So we couldn't really ask them because, you know, they know how to say it, but they don't know why. Whereas uh, the rest of us could argue all the grammar and all this. And that, that's very awesome. But my input was very much clear and concise language. Yes. Because that is, that is uh, one of the things I have over time developed a great passion for and uh, still have great passion for and hope to continue to have a great passion for okay where where does this passion come from basically the fact that i realized that when you write clear concise and simple without being insultive language you uh, catch the reader you get them to do what you want them to do and you avoid that they do something wrong because they don't understand you that is so vital when you convey uh, information to others that that it is not uh, based on oh they know what i mean oh they can guess that oh they should know that you can't base your instructions on that you've got to be very sure that when they have read and followed your instructions everything is done correctly and it's safe so do you think when you apply uh, this new standard, is, is applying this standard a way to create clearer instructions to catch the reader, as you, you're calling it? Very much so, very much so. But of course, the industry as such is so such a vast and multifaceted beast that you can't really give them, you know, simple rules that says you do this, this, this and this, which I think is what people are looking for. You have to give them, this is what you must consider, this is what you should do. Explaining to people what clear and precise language is will always be very difficult because, yes, it's perfect in English perhaps, but it may not be perfect in, say, German or French or Japanese. One of the first things you must do when you write technical documentation is to know who are you writing for? Who's the recipient of your fantastic information? I mean, are we talking a consumer, which must be assumed not to know anything about the product? Or are we talking about a super trained technician who really should know everything and who possibly could be able to correct your documentation in the first place? So uh, it's vital that one, you know who you're writing for, and then two, that you write it in a simple, 
preferably well-illustrated, if possible, way, so that uh, uh, you avoid mistakes or, as I said, people are expected to read between the lines or people are expected to know what the writer means because it's obvious to him or her, but it certainly isn't obvious to the, to the uh, reader. Are you saying that when you read the standard and when you read the requirements of the standard, that there is still a lot of own interpretation needed in order to create? Yes, you have to apply it to your particular subject. You know, there's so many different things that you have to write technical documentation about. I mean, I write currently about wind turbines. I've written about... Uh, sports cars are written about ground equipment for aircrafts, uh, subsea oil equipment. The basic idea, the way of writing and, uh, uh, and, and producing the information is exactly the same and that's what that standard is for. But the actual subject matter you're writing about will always differ. So therefore the standard requires you to make up your mind on your own, but it gives you the guidelines and the layout, I wouldn't say rules, but lays out the, the pathway you should follow. One of the things that is very important in my view, and I will put that down as being my view, is that technical writing should not be a mechanical rattle things out the same way all the time. You need to have the ability to allow the writer to have a little bit of poetical license so that uh, you can almost recognize who wrote this piece of information, even though it's precise, correct, simple to read, full of illustrations and perfect in any aspect of, of the conveyance of information. Funny that you're saying this because I was uh, last week, uh, I was in Antwerp, Belgium. Do you know this uh, shop or organization called School of Life? <laughs> Uh, I heard of it, yes. They had like a, a set of playing cards uh, for, well, uh, explaining different kinds of professions. I grabbed that pack of cards, I opened it, and the first card that I saw was about technical writers. What a coincidence. And it, it said there were like, well, several aspects being discussed uh, by giving it numbers. One of them was the chance that the technical writer will be replaced uh, by... A machine or yeah will be yeah will be replaced by robots machinery in the future so the chances were quite high according to that card like so a chance of 45 percent within the next few years are you saying when writing instructions does it need to be too too mechanical do you mean that with that as well that it's almost impossible to replace a technical writer by a robot or a machine no, it's not impossible to replace a technical writer for a robot if the robot is writing for another robot. What we mustn't forget is that, yes, artificial intelligence is storming forward and, yes, it's going to be able to put a lot of things together. But the still is who is the recipient of the information. If it is just a, a machine, then, yep, we will be replaced. There's no doubt about that. But when it comes down to if it's humans... We all know that humans will first of all try and then when things doesn't go the way they expect, they will look. And no machine can anticipate where or what they will look for. Humans can anticipate that because we know ourselves what kind of weird creatures we are and therefore anticipate that people have gone into and done something and there we can say, well, not tell them that you have done this, you fool, but saying uh, coming with the information in the in the sequence that we know that humans will expect to receive them, and that is different from product to product, from service to service, and although there is without a doubt a lot of of 
fairly menial tasks within technical writing that could be done by machines, you will always have to have a human eye on it. And that means that technical writers, I don't think, will be replaced. Their role may change, but they still have a lot of input. I think it is it is being a little bit naive to think that we can just be replaced like that. I'm not saying we can't be in various areas, but I still think we have a long time ahead of us where we will be most definitely needed. Yeah, so we still need a standard for writing clear instructions. Yes, if nothing else, that standard should then be used by the robots to write the clear instructions. So if someone is clever enough to put something together that can read the entire standard, understand what's meant with it, and then apply it, but at the same time apply it with a, a sense of, is it necessary here to apply that rule? Yes, no. If it is able to do that, then over time, without a doubt, we can, we can be replaced. But I, I think it's going to be a long time. I mean, to give you an example, everybody's hailing machinery translation at the moment. Oh, it's the bee's knees. Everything is so fine. It's so good. But then when you go into it and you say, uh, right, OK, give me a machinery translation. The first thing it asks for is give me a list of, of standard words. Hang on. You're a machinery translator. You should be able to do this automatically. Uh, I, I can't really. Give me, give me. And then you can see already there the machinery translation falls flat on his face. It'll come. It'll get better without a doubt over time, particularly when we feed them with, with more and more standardized words. It's a long way off. I'm, I'm pretty certain of it, even though that uh, the development of, of artificial intelligence is raising ahead like nobody's business. But who knows, maybe the, the clever people will stop in time and say, hang on, let's not forget ourselves. One thing that I noticed is that the new standard is called, it's the 82079-1-2019 Preparation of Information for Use, where the old standard, the 2012 version, uh, was talking about instructions for use. Do you know where this difference comes from? The intention was to get the uh, a standard to, to cover more than just instructions. Technical description, that's not an instruction, but it's also covered by the uh, standard. There's various areas uh, that were missed out because we used the word instructions, because everybody expected then step-by-step -step instructions. And there are others that are not step-by-step. -step, and there's, as I said, technical descriptions and functional descriptions and all these sort of things that have nothing to do with doing something, but has a lot to do with what you're actually working with. So that's why it was changed from instructions to information. Trust me, we argued walls up and doors down about this for ooh, two or three meetings. One minute we switched towards uh, instructions, then we switched over to information and back and forth. But eventually we settled down on information for use and it was then also accepted by our steering committees higher up in the systems. Uh, so that's why it's now called that. Being that it's a dash one is that it's the initial one and there were thoughts that perhaps we could fit in other more specific types of information for use underneath that the suggestion was that we had consumer products but actually having argued over that one as well we found that really the standard as it is covers all conveyance of information to someone to use something that's why it's there so standardization work is everything but boring you know when, when you first opened up the collection of let's say comments a, a current version, you can sometimes go, oh my God, what have I let myself in for? When the people that you're with are all 
dedicated to getting this right. And yeah, there are times when your mind goes wandering when someone goes into a particularly academic way of explaining things. You sort of, you do, I wouldn't say doze off, but no, it's never boring. You do get to meet some amazing characters. I've always said that I've never met more strange, interesting people than I have within the technical writing a fraternity, if we can call it that. It's not a fraternity because there's plenty of very good female writers. I used to have a colleague many years ago whose entry was uh, one side of his desk and just down from that uh, side of the desk was his uh, waste paper basket, which was rather large. He didn't have a tray. He just, you know, just piled the stuff on top there. And you know, when paper gets piled up to a certain height, it just slides off. So it slid off and into his paper basket, and that was it. He forgot about it. That was his way of sorting out the tasks. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> and I believe I formed some really good friendship with some of them over time. I can agree on that. I have the same experience with uh, my standardization work. Go, going back to the beginning, where you said uh, one of the major parts that you contributed to the standard has to deal with the usability of user instructions or information for use. Can you tell a bit more about how usability is being integrated in the, the new A2079 standard? It really is just, can you apply the suggestions or the, the guidelines we present? Because quite often uh, with standards, they can become as I said, so academic that you, you lose track and you sit looking at it going, what do I use this for? How do I apply this to what the situation I sit in? So there was a lot of thoughts from my side and from several other people's, I will say, about what we're saying here. Can we put this in? Can we use it? Can we make use of it? Can we apply it? There were areas where people insisted on having methods put in that I do not personally agree with because I find them incredibly difficult to apply. But there's a great love of this particular area in certain parts of the world. Uh, and therefore, you know, one of these battles, if you want to call them that, that I had to give in on that one and accept that that's included in the standard. I don't agree with it, but that's just me. And one of the things that is integrated are the principles or at least being mentioned in the standards are in the standard are the method of uh, minimalism. It's mentioned really briefly. Minimalism is a user centered way of creating writing clear instructions. So would you say this is one of the major improvements of the new standard or at least one of the things that is... It is a natural progression of the standard that it includes and very much suggests you use minimalism because minimalism is such a fine tool for creating precise instructions that are easy to understand. The whole thing is, is a question of passing on the information that people need. Don't flood them with unnecessary information or just give them what they need in a precise and easily understood manner. What are the benefits for the end user when you apply the principles of minimalism? They get the information they need and they get it in a fashion that they can use uh, straight away and it's readily understood and the information achieves what it sets out to achieve which is to convey an important piece of information at that point and no more, no less. 
I've read the new standards uh, a couple of times myself. I wasn't part of the committee. I didn't speak to anyone, but when, when I read the standard, I thought to read through the lines that there have been quite some discussions between people supporting minimalism and people supporting safety instructions. I do agree that minimalism and writing safety instructions do not go hand in hand all the time quite well. Uh, however, I think, for example, what, what my minimalism teacher uh, once taught me, you can write safety instructions in two kinds of way. You can okay, place a warning at the beginning of a section uh, saying always turn off the machinery before you uh, conduct any maintenance works. So then it's a warning, but when you apply the principles of minimalism, you can start the first instruction in your maintenance chapter with make sure that you turn off uh, the machinery before you conduct or perform, do any maintenance task, meaning uh, this, the, the, that warning, uh, which is, I think it's proven that almost nobody reads the warnings, is transformed to an instruction that people do read. Previous jobs I've worked in, there's been several attempts to do various ways. One way was put all warnings at the beginning of the document. Very quickly it was discovered that absolutely nobody read those sections because, you know, there's 10 pages of warnings, doesn't ring a bell, any of it, because it wasn't at the location where the, the actual danger was. Then move it to the section where the danger is, yeah, that reduced it from, from 10 pages to perhaps half a page, but still... Uh, um, People skipped it because they were interested in doing the job. Warnings, dangers or whatever should really be about that this here is dangerous. And what you should do, my mind, should be in the instructions. If you give them precise, correct instructions, then they won't put themselves in danger. But at the same time, we must make people aware of the fact that this could hurt you or this could destroy the machinery. And that's where you now get me uh, into my pet subject in this one here, which is the ANSI standard about warnings, cautions and notes, uh, which I am not a friend of. Let's put it that way. I, I do know that I think in, in Europe we never had a standard saying where uh, to place safety warnings in your documentation or user uh, manual. Yes, the machinery director, director actually hints that they should be at the place of, 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 of where the danger is present. So I was not aware of that there is a European requirement of where to place the safety instructions. And that, that's the reason that I always was a big fan of applying the, the NC standard, the NCZ 535.6, which says there are several kinds of safety warnings, general safety warnings, uh, sectional safety warnings and embedded safety warnings. And one more, uh, so the directional safety warnings, I think. And by, by dividing them into these four groups, actually, you're already saying, hey, you should place your safety warnings there where the danger is. Is that something, this American standard, is that something, is that a standard that you took into account when de uh, developing the A2079 standard? Yes, that was taken into account. And this is, that's not the part that I'm at loggerheads with. It is the part where you have different types of warnings, whether you die now, die tomorrow, or maybe die next year. <laughs> uh, it's that one that I'm, I'm, I've got great difficulty with because I find that's impossible for anyone, including despite what a most learned and most valued colleague of mine in the group, in the uh, work group said that it was, uh, it was up to uh, the safety responsible person to define which type of warning it should be. Uh, um, I will defy anyone uh, that they, they, they're able to do that, which is why I personally always apply the principle of you can get hurt, it's a danger. If you can 
do damage to the machine, it's something else. I mustn't, mustn't say that it's a caution because in 82079 we state that you shouldn't use caution as anything that has to do with, with uh, damage to machinery. If you can hurt yourself, and that includes you get a bruise or you lose your life, it is always a danger. That is just me because that is easy for the tech writer to understand and remember. Uh, and it is also something that, that therefore means that if uh, the tech writer uh, understands it, the reader will understand it as well. The end result should really be that people don't get hurt. Right. Um, let's go back to how the, the new standard can help anyone, a company, a marketing manager, uh, a technical writer to create clearer instructions. So, for example, I think clear instructions or let's say accessible information also has to do with uh, the medium on which the the instructions are being distributed definitely but what again uh, uh, sorry i may be old school here i mean yes people a lot of people are very very interested and i agree with it they're interested in videos particularly animations because uh, it's easy for people to understand and all this and trust me uh, if if all service technicians had a, an ipad or a or a tablet or some means of displaying this and being able to i mean if we take it to the ultimate solution you have vr where you actually look at the machinery and you can see through the machinery because what you're looking at is the line drawing of what you're looking at and thereby they'll be able to see exactly what to do uh, we're not there yet by any means and what i tend to say is that gutenberg is about 300 years old The PC is about 20 years old. We still have a little bit of time for the human brain to embrace the media of electronics and of animations. Uh, so much as I agree with animations are perfect for training, perfect for teaching. Uh, when it comes down to you're standing out there and you've got a situation where you need to know what to do, you need to be able to flick quickly through uh, some information and you need to find it and you need to have it lying open so that you can see what you're supposed to do. We're not there yet with, with uh, the electronic media. We are racing towards it. There's a lot of good efforts going on. The single sourcing and DITA and S1000D standards are working very much towards that. What does that mean for the end user, uh, DITA, single sourcing, etc.? Why does that make when applying those principles again? And let's say I'm, 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 a, I'm a lay person. I don't know what DITA is. I don't know what single sourcing is. The first of all, single sourcing basically means write once, use many times. That is the idea behind that, which means that if you have an instruction that applies to a particular part of your machinery and that part is reused many places if you have a system where you've written the instructions about the part the system should be able to when it looks at that oh that part is used over in this machinery as well then i can just apply the same bits of information meaning that you can create uh draw up your instructions more efficiently yep you can you can assemble them if you want data is a standard for how you structure the content of the bit of information that you but, but again uh, these are benefits for the technical writer what no, how, they're, how, they're, how they're, does... they're benefits for the user the end user because the end user will therefore always get If the 82079 standard is applied to the bits of information that is attached to a part, 
And although the bits of information have been structured according to, say, DETA or S1000D or other standards, doesn't really matter which ones, then the information will be available for that part. And that can be provided electronically, that can be updated daily, that can be delivered dynamically to the end user. And thereby, the end user will get the information he or she needs at the point of use he doesn't even have to take anything with him. So that's the delivery media. But we're not there yet. We're, we're working very hard on it, but we're not there yet. So can you, for example, say when you apply as a technical writer those data principles, those structuring principles, and you start chunking up all the information you have? For example, you have all your information for use. You can create several information types out of that. For example, a user guide, a maintenance guide, installation guide, etc. Within that user guide, you can create topics. Each topic consists of instructions and each instruction consists of single steps, for example. But then, for example, when you have like one one step out of an instruction, for example, put the switch in the on-off position. Yeah. Uh, when you single source that single step, then, uh, for example, in instruction one uh, and instruction four, uh, the same step is being used. So when you use exactly the same phrasing for that step, then it's clearer for the end user, I would say, that exactly the same thing is mentioned instead of saying one time uh, put the switch in the off position and saying in, in the other topic uh, put the uh, on off button in the off uh, in, in, in exactly. the off position exactly you, you, you start having consistency in terminology and etc etc but it, it requires a lot of thought a lot of planning and now we're sort of getting slightly away from, from 82079 which is really about the information you provide it's the complete assembled output we're talking about in 82079. When you get down into the smaller parts, uh, again, you've got to look at it as, as, as if it's a parts list. You know, the, to make a, a piece of machinery, you have a parts list. It consists of this many or this few parts, but each part has some instructions attached to it, and these instructions may be either installation, transport, service, replacement, you name it, whatever you can think of that you want to be done to this part. All this information is attached to the part, so that when the part is brought into another assembly, another parts list, then the information will follow along. But it requires that system knows that it belongs to a given part. It requires that a system that knows where the part is used, normally production uh, uh, systems will know that, but the content of the topics, as you call them, will be determined by if it's written with minimalism to a large degree and contains all the correct warnings. And, and there is a point where you have to say, let's not split it down any further. Let's accept that we have duplication of information because it doesn't make sense to split it up completely. It puts the onus on the, the system that you know where to find it. I know of several companies that started out with the best of intentions and they did all manners of tagging and information and marking and you name it. And then uh, they did a complete product, fantastic. And then they were to the next product and they looked at it and they went, yeah, that's fine. We can use all this. And then someone said, but I need to update whatever part it was, fine. And they realized, oh my God, they couldn't work out where things belonged. It is a, a slow process. It's a process that needs to be well thought through. And it's a process that takes a long time. And there you meet the 
jumping up and down marketing manager who wants the information yesterday yeah <laughs> okay and and again you're saying so um you can use the 8279 standard as a tool as, as something to rely on uh when creating your user instructions so it doesn't give like really clear instructions no it's it's like your theoretical background maybe it's your standard your meaning that it, it sounds like and not everyone can directly apply the standard. So is, is it limited to, well, technical writers or people that want to become a technical writer? Who, who, who can use, who is the target group for for uh, the standard? As far as I'm concerned, the target group is anyone who wants to convey a piece of information about technical information. I will limit to that because it's not about politics or anything like that. This is about conveying technical information to people in a safe, efficient manner. And that means, obviously, marketing, it means uh, sales, it means service, it means installation, it means transport. Anyone is a user of it to a certain degree. Of course, some are less users than others, but they're recipients of the information. And the creators of that information, be it, as I said, marketing or sales, or be it technical writers, or being it service organization, or whatever, can make good use of this, and, and it will help them in structuring the information they have to provide, not unimportantly, but also it will help them achieve what they set out to do, because I don't believe there's any technical writer that just writes because he thinks he should write something. He wants to convey the information that he's dealing with, to the end user so that the end user can do the job that he's supposed to do. That is the point of that standard. It is to make sure that people get everything in they want. People write in a simplified and, and, and straightforward manner. People make sure that all the safety that is needed is in there. Okay, so let's go to the next uh, topic. The standard discusses several aspects. So it discusses, for example, it gives requirements on uh, the content of uh, information for users, gives requirements on the information process. It discusses how to format and present uh, your information, um, etc., etc. So that's a, a lot of things that have been discussed and have been taken into account. C can you say that you agree on everything uh, that has been decided are you satisfied with the end result yes i'm satisfied with the end result i will i will back up on it fully as i said said earlier uh there are areas around the warnings and cautions and notes that i don't agree with 100 percent but i back up on it and i will say that uh, use it apply it because it actually is a very good piece of a very good document uh, uh, for for how you should work when you create your technical information and i would definitely recommend that people use it as the basis for what they're doing whether they are 100 percent compliant or not depends very much on the industry and also on the company that they are writing for but it certainly lays down the overall rules and structure for how you create good technical documentation uh, for the use of, of pretty much any product. Let's say when I want to apply the A279 standard to write better instructions, where do I begin? Good idea is to certainly read the four words, certainly read the uh, uh, table of contents to make sure that you know what it is you are wanting to have information on. And then I would start setting up the structure according to the guidelines that are in there so that you, you have an overall outline of what it is you're doing but again uh, i think what we mustn't forget is that the uh, standard covers 
normally a multitude of documents if we still talk about documents. I mean, you would normally start writing technical description of what you're dealing with. Then you look up what they say you should do there. There's a lot about terminology. There's a lot about making sure you, you call the things the same throughout your documentation. And a good way of starting is by starting at the technical description because there you can lay down the rules for what you call something. Because trust me, that is a huge problem throughout any industry that they call the same thing, different names depending upon who's dealing with it. And it causes confusion with the end reader when he suddenly gets, I can give you an example. I was working on a document from a, from a previous employer and this particular piece of kit had two, in the beginning it was named as arms, which held some uh, uh, coal onto a rotating piece. And these arms halfway through the document suddenly changed name to legs. It took me two days to find out that it was the same thing, but that the writer, previous writer of the document had changed the name of it halfway through. And me as a user of the document, uh, I got totally confused and were unable to do what I was supposed to do because the terminology was not right. That is one of the first things that you start on. Then you start structuring according to which product you've got and what, what is done to it and what the end user is supposed to do with it. Quite often, of course, it's mainly using it that is the important thing. But you may have stuff like how to transport, uh, how to install, how to commission, etc., uh, etc. Et and the 8079 standard guides you through this? It does indeed, yes. It helps you understand what it is you're supposed to come up with, but it doesn't give you exact that this is the wording you should use because that varies from industry to industry, from product to product. Right. So by applying the standard, uh, going through it, just start creating your instructions from scratch or maybe already uh, from your database with uh, where your single source, mm -hmm. your content, you will be able to, to create safe instructions. You will be able to create them more effect effectively, maybe more efficiently. Efficient and effective. And of course, that you end up telling people to do things in a safe manner. Okay. Thanks a lot, Sven. I think we've discussed quite a bit about the new A2079 standard. Then I want to uh, wrap up uh, this episode. Uh, thanks a lot, Sven, for taking part of it. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know how to end now. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I would like to thank the thousands of listeners that follow my show. And I'd like you to listen to this show next week and all weeks that will follow as well. What have you got to lose? You are on your way to create happier and safer users. And I invite you to email me with your queries or just to say hi. Or maybe you want to be in the show. So continue listening or write that email right now or you won't be safe anymore. Only joking of course.